This episode, we are joined by James Hollocks, author of the fantastic book, A Living Revolution, Anarchism in the Kibbutz Movement. Thanks for joining me, James. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Good, good to see you. So let's start by explaining the idea of anarchism and its critique of capitalist society and what it strives for instead. Well, anarchy just basically means without authority. Um, The same as monarchy means rule by one, oligarchy means rule by a group, anarchy just means without rule. So as a political ideology, anarchism argues that um, basically top-down authority in the form of the state, hierarchical forms of politics and so on, uh, is both undesirable and unnecessary, and that all of these kinds of structures should be replaced with um, self-managed institutions of voluntary cooperation. So centralized structures would be replaced with uh, self-organized, self-managed networks of uh, self-governing democratic communities. In terms of its economic vision, obviously anarchism is against capitalism, or most forms of it are anyway. Original anarchists in the mid-19th century, mid to late 19th century, more or less just borrowed Marx's critique of capitalism. So capitalism is viewed as an exploitative system. Production for profit rather than the satisfaction of human needs leads to um, a class society and domination of the poor by the rich. So anarchists argue that the starting point of production should be not profit, but the satisfaction of human needs. So with that, so, uh, anarchists or the left-wing version of anarchism um, specifically have been opposed to private ownership of property and the means of production, and um, they've advocated the abolition of the wage system and communal ownership and so on. And I say the left-wing version of anarchism, individualists have traditionally, but people like Max Stirner have traditionally been a little bit less interested in that. Private ownership has been more contentious on that side of anarchism, but certainly for the anarchist influenced by Peter Kropotkin, the anarcho-communist side of things, yeah, we're basically talking about a Marxist vision of society. Can you give us a bit more of an idea of what that means, self-management, please? Well, basically, it just means that instead of you know being managed by top-down authority, whether we're talking, I mean, you could look at it even in terms of the workplace, look at it in terms of a factory, instead of being managed by you know, a hierarchy of sort of managerial structure. It's, uh, I mean, the kibbutz is a great example. Um, the institutions are run directly democratically, worker control over the means of production and decisions are taken at the lowest possible level and not, you know, taken by a detached kind of managerial class. And you can look at that in terms of economics, you can look at that in terms of politics. That's broadly what I mean. Are there any anarchists that would include the existence of a state in their vision? I mean, basically, no. Some anarchists or people who call themselves anarchists, I'm never quite clear, for example, where Chomsky stands on this. I think Martin Buber, maybe not quite an anarchist, but he viewed the the state as something that should be stripped down as much as possible, but there was potentially a role for it. But Buber isn't viewed necessarily as, you know, fully within the anarchist tradition. Yeah, broadly speaking, it's fair to say anarchism is opposed to the state. This This is a very basic tenet of anarchism. So in terms of what they would replace it with, different strands of anarchism have different ideas, but broadly, we're talking about a federated network or alliance or inter-alliances of local level communities. So a a kind of self-managed grassroots kind of organization instead of a top-down centralized authoritarian structure. In your book, you start by painting a picture of Jewish life in Eastern Europe at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. And I'm asking, I'm wondering what drew the Jews uh, to these ideas, to the ideas of anarchism at that time? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think, I mean, anarchism and Jews have had a long history together, way before the 19th century. Some people have even argued that in a lot of Kabbalistic ideas, and particularly Hasidic ideas, there's a remarkable similarity with um, certain anarchist ideas. Um, If you look back 
through history, there are certain Jewish mystical groups that were based on, at least based on anti-authoritarian principles. Like a, a Christian equivalent might be the Quakers or something like that. So there is, you could maybe argue that there is something inherent in Judaism that makes, that creates an affinity with anarchism. I don't necessarily want to argue that point, but I think it's, it's an interesting perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Jews were attracted to anarchism in the 19th century. You had Jewish anarchist movements in um, various countries in uh, Eastern and Central Europe for, for many years, basically from the mid-19th century to the, you know, the early decades of the 20th. I mean, it wasn't just anarchism that Jews were attracted to. You know, It was uh, Marxism and all kinds of revolutionary ideologies. And I think a lot of it had to do with... So yes, there might have been this inherent similarity. Yes, there was something in Jewish society's sort of predisposition towards... I suppose what you might loosely call communal living or certainly like a very community orientated um, outlook. Um, But I think from around the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, there was simply just a recognition that something needed to change for the Jews in Europe. Um, Something needed to change radically. And hence, I think, you know, you had a generation, particularly of Jewish youth, turning to, to a whole range of radical ideas, anarchism being one of them. And in the early years of the 20th century, that sort of fused with the incipient ideas of creating a Jewish homeland. I mean, in the very in the first instance, Herzl's ideas of creating a Jewish state were, were not particularly widely held in the Zionist movement. So for a lot of these people originally, Zionism was, yes, it was a question of Jewish self-determination, but just as importantly, it was a question of creating a new society uh, in a new place, starting again from scratch. So a society that would be free of the kind of problems that they, and, you know, persecution and whatever that they'd seen around them in Europe. Quite naturally, as an inspiration for this, a lot of people turned to the kinds of revolutionary ideas that were gaining traction in Europe, so communism, anarchism, and so on. Within the Jewish community, obviously, different people took a different tack. Some were very, you know, opposed to Zionism from the outset and so on, but I'm talking specifically about the Zionist side of things here. Unsurprisingly, they drew on people like Tolstoy, who's communes in Russia were watched with great interest by a lot of these people. Uh, they turned to Kropotkin, who, Peter Kropotkin, the Russian anarchist, extremely influential in the anarchist movement. Um, and importantly, they turned to German anarchist Gustav Landauer, who became a huge figure, really, for a time in uh, among socialist Zionist groups in Europe. The work of a lot of these people, they saw a lot of people saw like a, a almost like a blueprint. I, I, I don't like using the word blueprint, but they saw at least, you know, the kind of society that Kropotkin and Landauer and Tolstoy were talking about, they um, saw as a kind of template for the kind of society they would like to bring into being in Palestine. This was a hugely, you know, utopian period where utopian ideas were taken very seriously. And, you know, there was a sense that really they were at a crossroads. Anything could happen here. Palestine was still under the Ottoman Empire and um, subsequently the British mandate. So really, it could have gone in any number of different directions. So when a Jewish homeland was promised, um, that homeland could take a whole range of different forms. A lot of these kids, particularly youth movements, um, were they saw particularly Landauer's ideas about self-realization and spiritual re- renewal and national revitalization. And they, they figured this was really applicable to the, to the kind of project that they were uh, trying to put in place in Palestine. So this idea that the creation of a new society necessitated, first and foremost, the creation of a new kind of person and a new kind of social relationship. These were ideas that had a really strong appeal among a generation of kind of radicalized youth in those days in Europe. It was a fusion between uh, the ideologies and nationalist ideology, sort of a liberation movement of the Jewish people, and a fusion of that with 
these anarchist ideals with a setting of the land of Israel in the Middle East and the backpost of, as you say, the Ottoman Empire and then later the British Mandate. And it sounds like from a situation where the Jewish people in Eastern Europe were, were in a situation of persecution and lots of upheaval in the society, there was some crazy sort of meeting of forces that uh, meant that this strange and fantastic ideology was put in these kids' backpacks and they got onto boats and they arrived here. And as you say, in order to build this new society based on these ideas and and this blueprint. Yeah, I mean, that, that's more or less, I mean, it's more or less what happened. And so what does that, what did that look like on the ground? They get off these boats, they're coming with this, these ideas and this ideology with them. What does it look like? What do those first steps look like in putting anarchism into practice? I guess we don't have a hell of a lot of examples historically of this sort of process of people consciously saying, I'm going to take this ideology and I'm going to build a society based on these ideas, I'm going to run with it. So what did, what did it look like? Firstly, I think you need to be a bit precise about what, what period we're talking about here, because really from the early earliest Jewish migrations in the 18, whenever it was, 1880s, 1890s, you had already a variety of different kinds of social and economic and political organization kind of taking root. So in the first decade, the first decade or two decades of the 20th century, there were already, even predating the kibbutz movement, there were already a broad range of different communal and quasi-communal and non-communal different forms of, of settlement. At that point, they were existing under the auspices of the Ottoman Empire, as I said. It's not what you would call a state in the modern sense, I would say. So it was within a, a kind of almost non-state entity. But anyway, my point is that even before the kibbutz movement came into being, you already had a lot of social experimentation going on in Palestine. Some of it was kind of top down. It was built by and funded by kind of philanthropists. And, uh, you know, it wasn't quite, you know, kibbutz-like, but there were certain elements of it that I think were really interesting. The Ganya, the first Kutsa, the first kibbutz, they were called the bourgeois, the first group, because they stayed in one place and they, you know, they should have been, up until then, the groups, the communal groups were moving around where the work was to be had. And when they said, no, 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 actually, we're going to stop moving around and we're going to create a permanent location for our first kibbutz, that, no, 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 that's bourgeois, like, we shouldn't be doing that, that's... Uh not radical enough. On the other hand, I mean, Degania grew out of um, a dispute, I think, Merhavia. And Merhavia was a sort of, it was a cooperative organization, but it wasn't radical enough for the Degania pioneers. And, you know, the, the foundation of Degania was, it was a really radical step. And it was obviously, in hindsight, it was a huge turning point for communal settlement in what would become Israel. So, yeah, so that was a turning point. You know, so you had that early period of experimentation where you had a whole range of um, communities existing alongside each other. Then you add the kibbutz into the mix. You know, the very first settlements were interesting in themselves. You know, places like Rishon Letzion and, and uh, the very early, the Biluim. Uh -huh. But even so, you know, from the beginning of the 20th century, at least, you know, predating the kibbutz movement, you had a really interesting mix of different models. And then, of course, later on with the third Aliyah after the... First World War, you had, you know, by which point the original Kvutzat had begun to really develop and take root in Palestine. Then after around 1919, uh, you had an influx of Jewish youth movement graduates from 
Europe, most of whom had at some point or another come into contact with Gustav Landauer, and this is kind of interesting. All of the Jewish socialist Zionist youth movements at that point were at least aware of Landauer, and particularly Hashem Hatzair were more than just aware of him. They were extremely interested in his ideas, and he was on there, along with Kropotkin and other anarchists, he was on their uh, educational syllabus for years, actually, for quite quite a long time after that. And these are the people, you know, Hashem Hatzair, these were the people that founded the Kibbutz Artsy Federation. So really at the, at the root of that federation, you have very strong anarchist ideas. You know, Meir Yari and the people who first arrived at Batania Elite in uh, 1919 were, you know, they arrived with the idea of setting up an anarchist society. This is what they wanted to do. They considered themselves Zionists, but they considered what they were, the project they were involved in was a stateless kind of socialism. And that, and that was something they took very seriously. And that was an idea that was at the root of the largest, what would become the largest kibbutz federation. And then, of course, so you had that, and then you had uh, the Gedud HaAvadah uh, and the Histadrut. With that came the formation of um, a whole new range of different social models. The Histadrut was almost like an entire alternative society in itself for a long time. The National Trade Union. Indeed. So not more than just a trade union. Exactly. Yeah, no, it, it ran, like I say, more or less a, an alternative society. Um, but certainly the Gerud HaAvadah, from which Ahmed Kibbutz Federation grew out of, they, again, a lot of the, well, certain key figures in the early years of that organization were extremely strongly influenced by anarchism. Uh, and particularly Peter Kropotkin was a very big influence at the beginning of that organization. So you had already a growing range of different forms of uh, radical forms of organization. And then, of course, you had the Moshevim. Then, you know, you had a whole spectrum of different communities right through to, uh, you know, capitalist enterprises at the other end of the spectrum. So in my book, I describe, I think I describe it as a kind of panarchy. Um, so it's an array of different kinds of political and economic models that people could choose between. And all of this, by this point, was existing within a kind of non-state entity, which is what I find really fascinating. You know, you had the British Mandate, which was essentially military, you know, military form of rule. But these were, and particularly the kibbutzim, became, you know, an alternative society in and of themselves uh, with their own economy. You know, it was on the back of these communities that the Jewish community in, you know, the Yeshuv was really organized. You talk about it. As though it was like it's like this best kept secret, and that you discovered something that not many people before you have discovered these anarchist roots to the early society that was being built and was continued to be built over you know the end of the nineteenth century and then into the twentieth century. That it's something that's just like the deeper you dug, the more you found those connections, those anarchist roots to what was going on here. Is that fair to say? I think, well, there are two things to say about that. The first is that it's in nobody's interest to admit that the early years of Zionism had anything to do with anarchism. You know, Netanyahu is not going to admit that. Why would he? The anarchist left isn't going to be interested in that because that count, that goes against the narrative of Zionism as this horrific racist force that you must subscribe to if you want to get anywhere in the anarchist movement today. So it's in nobody's interest to do this research. I, I, you know, there have been people who've done it, but not really to any to any great extent, because who benefits from it? Mm -hmm. I have many answers to that question, but so I think that's part of the reason. But look, the reality on the ground during that time was you've had a network of communes that were leaving aside all the others, this broad spectrum of communities that I'm talking about. Just if you take the kibbutzim as a network in themselves, these were as close to anarchism in practice as any society has ever been. 
They weren't pure anarchism by any stretch of the imagination, but as individual mini societies, they were strikingly similar to the idea of these self-managed agro-industrial communes that certainly Peter Kropotkin had advocated and later on Gustav Landauer. So you had, you know, these communes functioned by direct democracy. Decisions were made by the whole community. Property and the means of production were owned in common. Uh, the wage system was abandoned. You had the communalization of finances, equal remuneration, integration of manual and white-collar work, job rotation, agriculture, industry, no mechanisms of top-down authority. You know, you could leave. There are a lot of Kropotkinite boxes being ticked here. And you're right, it is, I always found it kind of weird that these were not seen as the example of anarchism in practice that I think they should have been. Like I say, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. The kibbutz would, would uh, I don't really want to go into detail, but you know, the kibbutz was responsible for some, for some terrible things as well. But I think, you know, as a mini society, as a form of collective organization, it staggers me that these are not looked at more closely by anarchists because there are so many anarchist boxes being ticked here. Okay, so on the one hand, you're saying it's pretty much as good as it gets in terms of examples, historical examples of putting those ideas into practice and giving it a good go and not sort of something that lasts five minutes and then, and then peters out, but it's something that continued for a long period of time. And on the other hand, you're saying it's not recognised. My assumption is, is it's not recognised as such is political. That is on the one hand is about Israel is about nationalism, the connection with nationalism and how that goes against the Marxist anarchist uh, ideal. And Israel in and of itself, I guess, is seen as a pariah on the international stage in a lot of quarters and most certainly within the, the radical left. Definitely. Maybe we'll come back and talk about this later. Yeah, I think it's, it's the greatest crime among anarchist people to be seen as in any way legitimizing anything to do with the Zionist project, regardless of the fact that early Zionism was really all about ideas that are actually not dissimilar to ideas that anarchists have been talking about. Like I say, it's not perfect. And, uh, you know, there are things that complicate that significantly, but even so. And the other thing is, yeah, I mean, you, you had these communities that had the kind of character and complexion that I've just described. But I think what is really buried is the the actual influences. I think it's fascinating to me that Gustav Landau was so close to the movement. Um, you know, you had people in the kibbutz movement actively seeking the advice of prominent European anarchist thinkers for how to, you know, how to build their communities. So I think, you know, that's something that, yeah, it is buried and it was buried in Israel. You know, after 1948, everything became about the state of Israel, you know, and, and that's not exactly unique. I mean, young countries do that. There is, that's not something that's unique to Israel, but basically everything that prior to the creation of Israel that wasn't compatible with the ethos of the state was kind of buried, was kind of omitted from the educational curriculum. So people like A.D. Gordon, for example, Gordon was was massively radical. If you look at what A.D. Gordon was was arguing, even in you know the very earliest years of settlement, these were he never called himself an anarchist or a socialist or anything else. But what he was essentially arguing for was very close to anarchism. He never talked about a Jewish state. He was hostile to the idea of authority, and you know again he ticked a lot of boxes. And yet Israel remembers A.D. Gordon as the rugged pioneer. They take his pioneering example and work that into uh, national ethos, but the radical aspects of it have forgotten. Same with people like uh, Joseph Trumpledore. Trumpledore was a war hero. He was, you know, he's a hero of the Israeli right. Now, Trumpledore was hugely influenced by Kropotkin as a kid. Uh, when he first moved over, he was sending his friends Kropotkin books to read. Uh, so, you know, but this isn't this, you know, Trumpledore's remembered. He's held up as this 
national hero, but these elements that were incompatible with the new state sort of mythology were, were left out. And I think that's, that's a, a really interesting thing in itself. Mm-hmm. And that's partly why certainly Israeli anarchists today are just not interested in this. It goes counter to the narrative that they have been brought up with, I suppose. Mm. If it doesn't fit in, I don't want to hear about it into into yeah. narrative. It's exactly. interesting because you're still here today, and when people talk about the beginning of of kibbutz and these communal experiments and the society that they're trying to build, you still hear people saying today, "Well, it was uh, it was just about circumstance." You know, they needed to club together in order to survive. There wasn't much great thinking behind it. It was about you come to this inhospitable place and you're not going to survive on your own and you need to live together and you need to share your meager resources because there aren't really much resources to share anyway. And that's the only way they're going to survive. And it was a real pragmatic period, breaking myths, which is, you know, more popular and populist. The founding myths uh, need to be shattered and need to be broken. And that, you know, the kibbutz and the early kibbutznikim are you know not above that and they too were just there and doing their thing and building their communities in order to survive yeah no absolutely i agree with that assessment you know even Degania, Degania were not the romani group didn't have a kind of a written down ideology they didn't go to that place with socialist ideas saying we are going to set up a socialist society the Degania group emerged from in a way out of necessity yeah absolutely but they had a very clear idea about the values that they wanted their community to be based on. You know, they formed their community in reaction to the authoritarian behavior in other communities. So, you know, there was, even in the supposedly unideological early years, there was a kind of, there was a strong sense that, you know, we want to create something new here. It wasn't just about survival, although that did come into it. You know, you could, you could say that were it not for the circumstances, this would never have come into being. And I think that that is true. Um, It wouldn't have done, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't ideology or ideas or values behind it. Certainly, you just have to look at even A.D. Gordon from the very early years of the kibbutz movement. You know, his his theoretical stuff was widely read in the kibbutzim, and it was taken extremely seriously. Even then, that argument just falls down. It doesn't apply. But then you get to 1919, you get to the third Aliyah, and, you know, these kids were ideological. They were seriously motivated. You know, they did come over inspired by the ideas of Landauer and Marx and, and you know, Kropotkin. Okay, yeah, it was a pragmatic way to settle the land. And for that reason, it, you know, widespread sympathy in all different echelons of the Zionist movement. But for the kids on the ground actually doing it, yes, this was ideological. Yes, it was based on values and ideas. And yes, it was based on the on a vision of the kind of society they wanted to create. Okay, thanks. You continue, you go on in your book to talk about the new urban kibbutzim and the new groups that have developed over the last 30 odd years and firmly place them in terms of an expression of Landauer's thinking federation of communal groups that would grow and eventually would replace the existing order. I wonder if there are other elements of anarchism that you think these groups should be looking to embrace and would help them actualize better these ideals. Hey, firstly, yes, I think there are a lot of elements of the new communities thinking that resonate a great deal with what Landau was trying to say. Landau's view was that capitalism, and, and this at the time was quite a radical view in anarchist circles, he believed that capitalism and the state were not entities that can be smashed. They are sets of relationships. They're complex and intricate webs of relationships. And it's only by changing these relationships that support and necessitate the current society, the current order that a new society can come into being. So this was an idea that captured the imagination of the early kibbutz pioneers from the socialist youth movement. You know, and they, they 
believed that the way to create and all the, you know the society they wanted to create was to create uh, you know to, to come together and create new relationships and intimate communities that would change the you know create yeah new relationships a new way of relating to each other so instead of fighting the existing reality creating a new system that makes the old one obsolete and I think there is a lot in the new kibbutzim and groups like yours that uh, that resonates with that, even if not from an anarchist perspective, particularly. I'm not going to come here and tell you how to run your communities. Um, I'm not going to come here and, you know, extol the virtues of anarchism really anymore. Uh, but what I do think in general, if anarchism has relevance to anything, which I think it does, I mean, my politics have changed since I wrote that book a lot, but I, I still can't disavow anarchism altogether because I think it does have a role to play in the critique of the existing society. And I think in particular, in terms of its philosophy of personal freedom and its approach to authority, which is really the core, at the core of anarchism. And in terms of how this relates to what you guys are doing, and in terms of how it relates to communal experiments generally, I would link this again back to the problems that developed in the old kibbutzim. Now, the old kibbutz, they started out with a very anti-authoritarian outlook, but one of the reasons that the old kibbutzim eventually lost popularity was because they became extremely authoritarian. And there was a, a feeling, you know, I guess from like the 1960, you might be able to correct me on this, but certainly 60s and 70s, there was an exodus from the kibbutzim because they were seen as stifling personal freedom and the idea this emphasis on equality came to be uh, equated with came to have a negative connotation came to be associated with authoritarianism so one of the things that people look at the kibbutz and say well that was not something i i want to be involved in was the idea of the subordination of the individual to the group and i think actually this points to a problem in the early anarchism of the 19th century that you know this was precisely what they were arguing they were arguing that top-down authority should be replaced by a kind of horizontal authority you know peer pressure the, what the kibbutzim discovered was that the tyranny of the majority the tyranny of the group is just as damaging to the individual as any kind of top-down tyranny. And I think any kind of communal experiment, any kind of communal society needs to take a lesson from that. And I think that's somewhere where anarchism's critique of authority, certainly more contemporary forms of anarchism who've really focused on this, it's something to bear in mind. And I know this has always been a concern of the new kibbutzim. You know, part of the reason the new movement came into being was to, to remedy this. And I think one of the things I like about what you guys are doing is this emphasis on the individual individual autonomy within the group. But I think any movement based on the kibbutz needs to bear in mind the experience of the kibbutz. You know, it'd be interesting to see how you guys evolve in that respect. But another interesting thing that I my experience in Israel gave me was the difference of opinion on this question between the models of communalism in the new kibbutz movement. So the urban kibbutzim, for example, Migvan, Tammuz, have a very different perspective on the idea of personal freedom and personal privacy and personal autonomy. The youth movement quotes are do. Personally, I, I side much more on the um, Migvan side of things. But certainly, I think there are lessons both from anarchism and from the early years of the kibbutz movement in terms of personal freedom, personal privacy, and so on, and, and the role of the individual and individual freedom within the group. It's fascinating that you say that the authoritarianism doesn't necessarily need to come from outside. It can also appear from within. Exactly. The danger from within, you know, it's something that you always need to keep an eye on and, and, and keep in check and understand uh, how decisions are made and individual freedoms once the society stops being a voluntary society in all the different ways and all meanings of that term, 
then you're sort of falling into the same traps that we've seen before in the in the classic kibbutz. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting you say that about about McVan. McVan today they've undergone huge changes over the years. Today the kibbutz I think is three people who are actually part of the income sharing kibbutz and they have a bigger circle. I mean they always the urban kibbutzim those you know Tamuz Migvan that is NLA shit were always communities that were like a nucleus of people that are part of the have got the cooper- uh, economic cooperation and and are together and then there's like wider circles of people that are involved in their non-profit organizations and part of their culture and and are involved yeah. in the projects that they run and Migvan went to a, like a you know slowly people started started leaving the kibbutz uh, structure but staying within the wider community they underwent uh, massive change and Tamuz. That process was already beginning when I was uh, talking to Nomika and uh, working with them. But uh, that's interesting that that's how it's progressed. That's how it's progressed. And Tamuz, that was Tamuz not so long ago. They're 22 members. They've already got grandkids, the guys from Tamuz. I was there a couple of weeks ago and I met the second grandchild. Oh, Anton, that's outrageous. That's how old we are, yes. So, no, but I think that analysis, I think that analysis of yours is is interesting, it's important, and I think that's why I do value things that you say and, and, and a perspective of somebody from the outside looking in and, and holding up that mirror and saying, you know, what are the, what are the things that you could possibly uh, trip over or make the same mistakes that have been made in the past and to point those out, and I, I, I do think that's important, and I... Uh, I think it's a, it's a tension. It's definitely a tension in our lives. Yeah, one of the big problems where the kibbutz got to was the kibbutz says that I must. It's me versus the kibbutz. It's me exactly. opposite the kibbutz. The kibbutz has decided this for me. I think that's a really not a good place at all to be in. It means that people are really disempowered. It means that people see the institution of the kibbutz as something that's faceless. And I think the idea of, of us being in Kutsot was one of the ways in which to try and combat that feeling of the kibbutz opposite me and having a smaller circle and a smaller group of people. No, I totally, I think that's very valid. Just to follow up on that, what you guys do in terms of this constant debate and questioning and, and you know, you, my impression of your community was that you are, this has always been very much at the top of your mind and it's something that you're constantly aware of and checking yourself if you see aspects of the keyboards going too far in one direction. This is something that actually you could learn from the negative experience of the anarchist movement. The anarchism, when it becomes dogma, because it's dead, it becomes dead. There's no, there's no point to it. You know, when, when you have groups of people that are just trotting out dogma and unable to think, you know, think for themselves, that's something that, that I would be pathologically conscious of if I was involved in any sort of radical, radical experiment. I think that's a huge failing of a lot of anarchists today. It's just dogma, it's platitudes, and it's, it doesn't get anyone anywhere. I totally agree with you. It needs to be real. It needs to be living. If you're not asking questions all the time about it, then uh, it can control you rather than you controlling it, whatever it is. You're not in control of your own uh, surroundings and community and society and whatever. Okay. You looked at a whole host of different models of communities in Israel uh, during your research. And I'm wondering if you have anything to say about why there's so many different types of communities, alternative societal models here in Israel. You know, that's a question that I thought a lot about at the time and since, and I don't really have an answer. I think it is a fascinating country in terms of this diversity of social experimentation that's still happening. You know, Israel was, was built 
on social radical social experiments. So maybe that you know there is a sense in which this has a greater level of cultural legitimacy in Israeli national life. I mean, there is there is no question of that. You know, I can't think of another single country in the world where communes have are taken as seriously as they are in Israel. I mean, part of it is that there is just the, this society. It's a society in a process of self creation, and I think it always has had this diversity of experimentation. And I think maybe it's just so accepted in the Israeli national consciousness somehow that that you know it's just become part of who you are as a country. I, I That's just a guess. I think also because of the nature of Israeli society, because of the nature of the fact that you, you have people coming in from all over the world, bringing different experiences from all over the world, bringing different ideas from all over the world. You know, this is what happened in the 20s and 30s. You had people bringing Russian anarchism into the country. You had you know, and so on and so on. And I think that can't help but create a very diverse setting for different kinds of experimentation within the context of a kind of collective laying claim to its homeland. You know, I think that's that's always been the central underlying principle of Zionism. Obviously, you have that common connection and, you know, you're at once at the same time laying claim to your homeland, but also believing that your own sort of set of ideas is its own natural form of reason or whatever. And I think it's partly because of that odd combination of dynamics that all of these different kinds of social models are able to kind of exist together and kind of take root uh, in the country. But, you know, that's just, I really don't know. It's a really interesting question. That's just my perspective on it. It's certainly very, very diverse. I think I agree with you. There's legitimacy for crazy ideas. Yeah. And people are able to run with them and see where they take them. And there's nothing more crazy than the Zionist project as someone that is totally on board it's still something that's totally out of this world uh, to imagine these kids getting on boats and coming over here and saying we're going to build a new society uh, in this inhospitable land it's a pretty hefty mission that they took upon themselves and if that was sort of possible then maybe other crazy experiments are also possible I mean you know I go to anywhere else in the world and I say I live in a commune and it's just like okay that's you know sex drugs and orgies and whatever and in Israel, yeah, it's part of the history of this place is that people were living communally and were in the parliament and were generals in the army leading the country into this part of, part of this country even today. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. It makes for a completely unique setting. People like me, it's just absolutely fascinating. Okay, we're going to move on to our final question. Uh, we said we'd come back to it. Your book was published by an anarchist publishing house. And I guess your intention was to bring these real-life expressions of these ideas to the radical left scene as a real living example, hence the title of the book. And I want to ask you how it was received and how you were received. <laughs> I think you can probably guess. Be careful what I say here. But uh, I've, I've said before that uh, to be in anarchist circles today, to be seen as being sympathetic in any way to any incarnation of Zionism is the ultimate crime. That, that will get you excommunicated from the anarchist tribe quicker than anything. Regardless of the fact that actually the kind of society that the early kibbutz pioneers wanted to create in Palestine was actually not that dissimilar to the kind of people who are today arguing for a kind of no-state solution to the Israel-Palestine situation. But that's not important because it had the word Zionism attached to it. So we must discount that whole period of that whole period of history because it has nothing to offer us. That was basically the reaction. Having said that, you know, I look back at it and I think, you know, the AK Press thought they were getting a very different book than the one they actually got. I don't know what they were expecting, but they didn't get it. Like when you pitched the idea to them, they were like, yeah, cool, that sounds great. Or they were like, Israel? 
Huh? No, I think they, they were expecting something. So uh, I don't actually know. It's so long ago and baffled ever since, really, as to what they thought they were getting. But uh, they didn't get it. And I think they, they thought they were getting something to do with, uh, you know, Palestinian solidarity or something like that. Because when anarchists think of Israel now, they just think of the Palestinians. Um, and they think of Israel is this racist entity that is oppressing Palestinians. And, and anything to do with, Israel, with anarchism in Israel has to be orientated solely towards the Palestinians. Whatever, that's fine. But that's nothing to do with what my book was about. Like in, in those days, I'm talking about something completely different. These communes, for all I cared, these communes could have been in France or Germany or Australia. I would still have written about them. My interest was these communes and like how they seem to represent to me a working model of something that looked a lot like what anarchists have tried to argue for. And, you know, if, if these communes had been in Australia or France or Germany, the reaction to the book would have been very different. Really? You're convinced? You're convinced of that? Convinced of it, yeah. Because I think it's impossible to look at these communities objectively and say, no, no they're, they're of no relevance to anarchism. The only reason that they were seen as no relevance to anarchism to a lot of anarchists is because they were in Israel. Having said that, so the reaction from the usual anti-Israel fanatics was as you might expect. Um, but I have to say, they were mainly not, the, not on the anarchist side of things. You know, I, it was pretty positively reviewed. I don't think many people read it, but it was pretty positively reviewed by the people that did. And I, I'm still surprised to see it cropping up in bibliographies of not many, but a few books from anarchist quarters. So I think in spite of the early fuss that a lot of hard leftists made of it, um, you know, it, did, it did take root in places. You think at least one person that read it and were expecting, were, were moved by it in a way to say, ah, maybe to write off Israel without actually going into the details was too hasty and uh, there's something here. I've met a few people who said that, which is really, you know, which, which makes it makes it worth it. Yeah, so I, you know, I have mixed feelings about the way it was received. In hindsight, it was all fairly predictable, really. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. I think anarchism today, I've sort of alluded to this earlier on in this interview, it's a tribe. Anarchism in the 19th and early 20th century was people who genuinely wanted to create a new kind of society and made the effort to put that into practice. I don't see that today. Anarchism is a subculture. It's a tribe. It's a tribe like any other tribe. The important thing is maintaining your membership in that tribe, um, in that subculture, because the subcultures are amazing. They provide this sort of comfort and security and moral cleanliness in this case. And uh, to go against that and to forfeit your place in that tribe, I think, you know, that's, that's a big deal. So I can see why people don't do it. You know, I, I know a lot of anarchist academics who are more than aware of you know, the history of Zionism and the stuff that I was writing about, but they'll never come out and say it because it's just not worth it. It's not worth the recriminations for them. So yeah, sorry if we sound a bit negative about where anarchism's ended up, but uh, I think it's a very different beast now than to than what it was you know, 100 years ago. James, thank you so, so, so much. This stuff, clearly I have a personal connection to and somehow you managed to describe it and root it in in a, a place which for me is inspiring and is challenging and I think exp manages to explain a lot even to people that are actually trying to live this today. Uh, and I thank you for that. And I thank you for joining me and sharing your thoughts. I guess if it's something that you ever want to come back to, return to, even a visit, but even more than that, in terms of continuing asking these questions and finding these connections, then I, for one, will be, will be happy. Well, you're very kind. I really appreciate that. Be on a plane to Israel tomorrow afternoon. Cool. I'll pick you up at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you. It's been a long time. Yeah. Yeah. James, thank you. 
You take care. You too. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye.